Luke chapter 1. Now, God, as we open up your word, uh, as we engage with the Christmas story, would you, would you help us to be aware of your presence in the story? Help us to be aware of your presence in the scripture. Your, your word is alive and active. Help us, O oh God, to not only be hearers of your word, but also doers. In Jesus' name, amen. The very first Christmas was holy and disruptive. I suppose you may think that disruptive is an odd descriptor of Christmas, but when you consider the nature and the essence of the story, Mary and Joseph, a young couple, with hopes and dreams of a family, of a future together in their small backwater town. When all of a sudden, an angel shows up and everything is disrupted. On the night Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the field doing whatever it is that shepherds do as they watch over their sheep when all of a sudden, Angels terrified them. And no one had seen an angel for thousands of years. It was disruptive. The the magi, the wise men, the stargazers, as they looked intently into the heavens, they saw something, a star. And they upended their whole lives and traveled for two years to see what this might mean. It was disruptive. And and King Herod, when King Herod, a man who was bloodthirsty with power, heard that there was the birth of another king, would have nothing of it, and discovered the town in which this king was born and had every male child under the age of two murdered. Now, just because something is disruptive, that does not mean it has to be bad. It can be good. The word disruption simply means a radical change. When you think of one of the most famous of all Christmas stories, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, it's the story of a disruption in which Ebenezer Scrooge, a man who is greedy and angry and bitter, experiences a profound life transformation. When I came to faith in Christ in 1991, it was a disruptive event. Turned my whole life upside down, but it was a good thing. In 1997, I walked down the aisle of Radiant Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I said, I do, to Rebecca. It was disruptive. Because up until that moment, it was only me, and now it was we. In 2003 and in 2007, when my two loving children were born, it was joyous, but it was disruptive. And then one year ago, this week actually, we welcomed into our home a 10-pound Golden Doodle, who is now a year old and 65 pounds, 
And though he brings me joy, he is a bit disruptive. Just ask my wife because he ate one of her vacuum cleaner attachments that we just bought two days ago. (laughs) The story and the message of that first event we call Christmas is disruptive, and it should be. Jesus did not come as a baby, an event we call the incarnation, so that we could have a weekly event we call church in which we sit in rows, sing songs, hear a sermon, and go about our way. No, Jesus came so that we could be transformed, changed. Now, Christmas obviously is a a popular time. Most people like Christmas. And many people, especially at Christmas, want the Christian thing, which is why so many go to church at Christmas. But we want the Christian thing as long as it does not kind of interrupt our normal life, right? And yet it would seem to me that the message of Christmas is you're, you're either fully in or you're, you're fully not. It reminds me of a conversation I heard between two of my cousins last summer. Both are in middle school. And one of my cousins... He has chosen to become a vegetarian for a variety of reasons, but he's pretty committed. As a middle schooler, I think that's a big deal that he would do that. But he was trying to explain to his other cousin why he'd become a vegetarian. And this other cousin looked at him and said, that's fine, I can appreciate that. He goes, as a matter of fact, I could become a vegetarian as long as I could eat pork chops, bacon, and cheeseburgers. (laughs) And I said, I don't think that's how it works. Either you are or you're not. Luke chapter 1, there is an event in which an angel appears to Mary and reveals God's plan. It's a very disruptive plan. It's going to upend her whole life. And she says, yes, may it be to me as you've said. Immediately following that encounter, I think Mary needed a place to deal with, with this. Because when when something like that happens, you want to talk about it, right? So she she goes to her cousins, Elizabeth, who was also pregnant at the time with another special child. His name is going to be John. We know him as John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. So Mary hurries with serious intent. She has this news. And when you have good news, life-changing news, you want to tell somebody. And so she travels to her cousin Elizabeth's house, which was not next door. It was about 80 to 100 miles away. There's no Uber. She couldn't get out her phone, dial up the app, and order a car. She had to walk. 
And it seems, at least according to the story, that she walked by herself these 80 to 100 miles, which in the day that this story was written would have been considered culturally deviant behavior. Unusual and improper because women did not travel that distance alone. I mean, culturally in Mary's day, women were still kind of seen as property. First of their father and then of their husband. But she went, she walked in the door to her cousin's house and it gets intense quick. As she walks in the door, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't specifically say what that means other than we know that Mary or Elizabeth prophesies. She says, God has blessed you above women and your child is blessed. Now, up until this point, at least a reading of the story would indicate that Mary hadn't even told Elizabeth what had happened. And when Elizabeth pronounces this blessing on Mary, she's not like, offering a blessing. She's acknowledging what she knows has happened. It was a time of joy and gladness. When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Now, I don't, I don't know what that would have been like. I mean, I put my hand on my wife's abdomen when our children kicked, but for a baby to jump for joy, I mean, that must have been something. <laughs> Mary and Elizabeth both are, are Jews. The nation of Israel had been waiting a long, long time for a savior. Between the last pages of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years had passed without a single word, a prophecy, nothing from God. And maybe you've gone through a season in your life in which it seemed like God were silent, that God wasn't speaking to you or answering your prayers. But can you imagine 400 years? And then in an instant, things start to happen. Mary, Mary bursts out in her own song. It's a prophetic song. It's almost as if all of a sudden the story turns into a musical. I mean, you, you like you like musicals? I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of musicals. I, I took my wife to see Phantom of the Opera on, on Broadway in New York City because she loves musicals. And when it was over, she said, what did you think? Wasn't it awesome? I said, it was fine. I mean, I said, they sang a lot. She goes, that's because it's a musical. <laughs> Although I, I did begrudgingly go to see Hamilton last year and that was pretty good that was awesome because because music has this ability to move us and so Mary begins this song that some call the magnificent verse 46 and Mary said my soul glorifies the Lord it's called the magnificent because in the Latin vulgate that word glorify means to magnify And Mary said, my soul glorifies, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior. And so the lyrics to this song that Mary sings foreshadows the disruptive genius of what Christmas is. And it begins with joy. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God. When you set aside all of the cultural trappings of Christmas... 
all of the commercialization, not all of which is bad. There's a lot of things about Christmas and culture that I like and that I enjoy. But when you set that aside, the message itself, the event itself, is meant to bring joy, elicit joy in those that base their life on this story. When Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, and the angels appeared to the shepherds who were terrified, as I would be, the angels said to them, do not be afraid, because I bring you good news that will cause great joy For all people. When you consider Israel's history, it was harsh. Israel spent hundreds of years oppressed, in captivity, in exile. And when this story was written, Israel was under the cold thumb of the Roman Empire. And so now there's this joy-filled message that the Messiah has come. I mean, I wonder, have you ever been so joyful about something that, that you cried, like tears of joy? Now, I'm not, not much of a crier. I'm not against crying. It's just not, I just don't cry very often. However, when my children were born and I looked into those little eyes, that new life, I bawled like a baby, even though I knew this little life was going to be so disruptive. I brought my daughter home, our first child. I placed her in the crib, and then I laid down in the bed next to her, and I said out loud, okay, now what? I didn't know what to do. I mean, the, the sleepless nights, the diapers, feed, but it was, it was joy. In the classic Christmas story, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, the main character is Ebenezer Scrooge who is the opposite of joy. There's a scene in the book in which Ebenezer Scrooge is in his counting house and his nephew comes by, who's filled with the joy of the season and wishes his uncle Ebenezer Scrooge a Merry Christmas. And I love Scrooge's response. It's classic. He says to his nephew, If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. (laughs) And yet, there's a lot of truth to a lot of the way that life is lived in that statement. See, this song that Mary sings, this prophetic word of Christmas, will in many ways upend the power structures of everything, turn the world upside down. Verse 48, she continues, for he has been faithful. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to all those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost beings. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. I mean, this, this new era that this Messiah is going to usher in will view humility and vulnerability as strength. I mean, it's revealed in who and what was chosen to deliver the Messiah. Mary, a teenage girl, a nobody, born in the middle of nowhere from a family of no prestige or esteem. I mean, Jesus was placed in a manger in the dirt. And as he grew and and taught, he said things like, well, the first shall be last. And the greatest is actually the servant. And the way that you access this God is not through power, but through awe. His mercy extends to those who fear him. That word fear can be translated as the word awe or wonder. Those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, the word fear doesn't mean afraid of because it's dangerous. I was, I was in Alabama a few weeks ago for this event. And on some time off, I went golfing with a couple of guys. And I'd never been to Alabama before. And I, when I golf, I donate a lot of golf balls to Mother Nature. And I was in the weeds, again, looking for one of my golf balls. And one of the guys that knew this owl said to me, you know, there's rattlesnakes in there, right? I'm like, then I'm out because I don't like snakes. I'm afraid of snakes, especially poisonous ones that can hurt me. That's not the word, what the word fear means. The word fear is more of a be in awe and wonder and reverence because of how powerful something is. It's more like this. Years ago when we lived in Colorado, someone gave me tickets to see the Air Force play Notre Dame at the Air Force Academy. So I went to the game, and right before the game started, I needed to use the bathroom, so I went up, uh, had a bunch of porta potties went in, and when I came out, I came out at the exact moment that the Air Force did the flyover with the jets, which I'd never seen before. And I opened that in the... I've never heard anything that loud. And they come down low and fast, and it was something. Everything rattled. And I came out, and it was terrifying, but it was awesome. I was like, whoa, wow, that was so cool, but terrifying. That's what the word fear means, at least in this context. See, one of the great dangers, I think, for the Christian faith is the danger of dullness. I just lost that sense of the astonishment of what our faith is. The first Christmas was certainly a time of astonishment. And when we move into the epistles, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, our, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Could one of the great sins of the modern church be dullness? I wonder, are we so busy fighting culture that we've lost our sense of awe and wonder? God God doesn't need us to defend him. But what he does need is for us to represent him well. The scriptures, the writing of the apostle Paul tells us that we are 
ambassadors, representation of Christ. I think he does a good job defending himself. We are called to represent a really risky message. Mary continues in her song, verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. I mean, these words that Mary spoke in her time would have been seen as politically subversive, treasonous. He brought down rulers from their thrones. I mean, if Herod or Caesar would have gotten word of this, Mary was at risk of her life for even saying such a thing. The words are so startling, in fact, that the author C.S. Lewis called this song a terrible song because of its dreadful, frightening, and fearsome message. I mean, this, this song, the lyrics, would shake the foundation of of everything people knew. And yet, it's a reminder of God's future at work, and Mary saw it with startling clarity that God favors the humble, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor. I mean, life in Christ is different. It's divergent. Jesus came not that we could be nice people. He came that we could be transformed people. Christmas is a reminder that that God is indeed trustworthy. Mary concludes her song by saying, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I mean, Christmas is the story of God keeping his promise. Stories, they shape us. The stories that we tell ourselves shape who we become. We live in a world of competing stories, and many of those stories hold nothing but empty promises. And sometimes we hold God to promises that He never made. I mean, He never promised that life would be perfect, that life would be free of, of suffering, and no, He never promised any of that. He promised that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. So how will we be disruptive this Christmas? And I don't mean like when someone says to you, happy holidays, and you say, no, it's Merry Christmas. That's not disruptive, that's just being a jerk. Because right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we're just called to say Merry Christmas, we're called to live Merry Christmas. And everything that that means. And so I think we can begin by being disruptive, by spreading joy, regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of what's going on in the world. We can be, we can create a super spreader event of joy. In the book, The Christmas Carol, I love Scrooge's nephew's response to Scrooge's comment that. Everyone who says Merry Christmas should be boiled in pudding with a stake of holly through their heart. Scrooge's nephew says, and keep in mind this book was written in the 1800s, so the language is old. But he responds to his uncle Scrooge by saying, There are many things 
from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not some other race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say God bless it. Christmas is a time not only to spread joy, but to spread our abundance, to give to those who lack. I think one of the great disruptive practices of Christmas is giving to the poor, which I've made a personal spiritual practice because I know that I live in abundance. We, we all do, really. I mean, when you, when you think about it. I spend more on dog food than some people in the developing world have all month to live on. And so Christmas organizations like World Vision and Compassion International offer ways for us to give generously to the poor, and I think that's a great disruptive experience. Because it helps us to live incarnation. I mean, one of the great disruptive practices of Christmas is to simply live the incarnation, live the message of Jesus. Maybe it's as simple as offering grace to that person you know does not deserve it. But offering it anyway in the same way that the Christ child offered it to us when we didn't deserve it. The ancient Celtic Christians had a belief, an idea that they called thin spaces. A thin space was a season or a place in which it seemed as though the boundary, the distance, the chasm between heaven and earth collapsed. I've come to see Christmas as one of these thin spaces. A time in which it seems like heaven and earth comes a little bit closer together when people's hearts are a bit more open to the realities of spirituality. Over the next few weeks, thousands of people are going to walk through our doors. Some who do not have a relationship with Christ at all. And will they see a better story? Will they see people who really believe in the incarnation of Christ and the child in the manger? Will they experience something else? Something that causes them to say, bah, humbug with all that religious stuff. See, I'm, I'm choosing to be holy and lovingly disruptive. And so, God, I ask you to help me, help us. When I think of the miracle of Christmas, help me to be astonished say, wow, the God of the cosmos was so vested in us, his creation, that he would do whatever it takes, even becoming the most vulnerable of all creatures, 
a baby. And not only becoming a baby, but then growing and living 30 years in obscurity. And then literally dying for the world. Wow. Help us to live God holy and disruptive. Amen.